Last time we studied Revelation chapter 11. And I thought before going on to chapter 12, we might take an opportunity to just insert sort of a parenthetical update of our own. The first two verses of Revelation chapter 11, of course, dealt with the temple. To refresh your memory on Revelation chapter 11, first two verses, John says, And there was given unto me a reed like a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise, and reckon, or measure, the temple of God, and the altar, and them that worship in it. But the court which is outside the temple, cast it out, and measure it not, for it is given unto the nations, and the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now it's interesting that John here, as part of the scenario, part of the events of the 70th week of Daniel, is told to consider, measure, reckon, the temple of God. Now this is not the church, this is a specific edifice in Jerusalem. And of course it catches our eyes here, because the temple at the time the book of Revelation was written was destroyed. There was no temple from 70 A.D. on. Revelation was written about 95, 96 A.D. And that's fairly well established today, although some people still argue it. There's good evidence for it. The first temple, of course, built by Solomon, was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. When they returned after the seven years' captivity, a second temple was built under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Nehemiah and all of that. That temple, very modest though it was, was later expanded and modernized and elaborated on by the Roman appointee, King Herod, a non-Jew, an Edomite, that hoped to gain more popularity by uh, investing in the temple on behalf of the Jewish constituency there. But he also took on a massive building program, built Masada and many other things, characteristic of his reign. Herod, that's why these are sometimes known as Herod the Great. But the uh, point is, that temple, of course, was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. We've talked about it's a very, very key event in Bible prophecy. It's alluded to in many ways, not the least of which is described in great detail by Jesus 38 years before the event, uh, just before his crucifixion. About four days before his crucifixion, he, he detailed all that in Matthew 24 and elsewhere. So when we encounter this passage in John, it catches our attention. And of course, many, many commentators throughout the centuries have assumed that this temple, just like much of the book of Revelation, they assume is symbolic or allegorical. And increasingly, I think, conservative scholarship is increasingly taking the book literally for many, many reasons. Now, one of the reasons that this catches our eye in today's society is that we find in the New Testament, the temple standing just prior to the second coming, is alluded to by Jesus, by Paul, as well as John. John here, and Jesus, when he, four disciples come to him for a confidential briefing on the second coming, he gives them a two-chapter response. That's so important. It's recorded in Matthew 24 and 25, Luke 21 and 22, and Mark 13 and 14. So-called Olivet Discourse. The key milestone in that presentation turns out to be the desecration of the temple in Jerusalem. And that again implies that in order for it to be desecrated, it has to be standing and consecrated. So that again is a very, very pivotal allusion that Jesus himself highlights for us. In fact, in his allusion, he points you to Daniel and, and instructs you to understand what Daniel was talking about. We even note that in the fulfillment of Daniel's 70-week prophecy, as occurs in Luke 19, it, we even discovered Jesus held them accountable in that day to understand the Daniel prophecy. So as we look at Revelation chapter 11... It catches our eye because today you and I discover 
that in Israel they are preparing to rebuild the temple. And uh, don't misunderstand, they don't have access to the real estate that they need, but they're presuming they will have, and they're uh, aggressively preparing it. And so I thought what we would do is just insert in our little series of studies here of Revelation, just take some time to talk about the coming temple. And most of what I'm going to talk about, was we published in a book called The Coming Temple uh, a couple of years ago. And I will also include the results of the annual Jerusalem Temple conferences that we've participated in over the last three, four, or five years. So let's just pause and take a look at this piece of real estate about which the entire world is already beginning to position itself in one way or another. Now, the first thing that you hear about when you visit Jerusalem, you, of course, from the Mount of Olives, you see the characteristic skyline of Jerusalem, and right very beautifully positioned in the middle of it is the Dome of the Rock that gives Jerusalem its characteristic skyline. And, of course, that Dome of the Rock is uh, regarded as a, a sacred place to the Islamic world, of course. And, of course, it purports to sit upon the rock, first of all, that Muhammad presumably uh, left Jerusalem from, even though that does not appear in the Quran, it just refers it to as a remote place. The Muslim legends have placed it there in Jerusalem, and that's their basis for venerating that particular spot. The conservative Jewish community regards that spot as the spot that Abraham offered Isaac. Every guidebook and every time you hear someone talk about the Dome of the Rock or that location where the Dome of the Rock stands, everybody will allude to the fact, well, that's where Abraham offered Isaac. And I want to share with you a view that's a little different than that for your own consideration before we get started here. I have here on the view graph a topological map. A topological map is a map of the terrain, and every one of these lines represents a 10 meters difference in altitude. And you'll discover here that um, we have really Mount Olives right here. There is a ridge right down this middle here called Mount Moriah, and then there's Mount Zion over here. Or putting it another way, there's really three key valleys here. There's the Kidron Valley here, there's the Teropian Valley here, and there's the Hinnom Valley here. Going back to the days of Abraham, in Genesis chapter 22, you may recall that Abraham was told by God to offer his son Isaac on a mount that he would be shown. And he journeys three days from Beersheba to this place where he was instructed to offer his son Isaac. At that time, there was a settlement at the base of Mount Moriah known as Salem. It shows up in Genesis 14. It was the location where Melchizedek was both a king and a priest. Now my presumption personally is that Abraham didn't offer Isaac in town. My presumption is he went to the top of the mountain. Well, if we look at a topo map, the ridge system that becomes Mount Moriah starts at about roughly 600 meters above sea level. And if you climb this ridge, this later becomes Jerusalem, and I'll come back to that. You climb up here. When you get to the area that's now the Temple Mount, you're at about 741 meters above sea level. But you're not at the peak. You're at what's really a saddleback. If you keep climbing this ridge system, you come up here to a spot right up here that's about 777 meters above sea level. 
And I believe that Abraham offered Isaac on the peak of Mount Moriah, which is not here, it's here. And what makes that interesting is, it's the exact spot that another father offered his son as an offering for you and I. That place is called Golgotha. You can visit it today. It's interesting that Abraham knew he was acting out prophecy when he did this, because if you read Genesis 22 very carefully, he names the place Jehovah-Jireh, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. He knew it was prophetically relevant. And indeed, on that very, very spot where Abraham offered Isaac, some 2,000 years later, some Romans erected some crosses. Now, the question is, okay... Then how did this become the Temple Mount? What the Temple Mount has got nothing to do directly with the Abram's offering of Isaac. You study the record. David sinned, and as a result of a certain sin having to do with numbering of people, God sent a plague, and David prayed for that plague to be assuaged, and God told him to build an altar and do an offering where an angel was standing, and he purchased the thrashing floor of Aruna, or Ornan, depending on how you spell it. And this area here is a thrashing floor. What that means is a thrashing floor is not necessarily at the peak of the mountain. A thrashing floor in those days was a parcel of ground, often on a saddleback, where there was a prevailing wind in the evenings. And at harvest time, what they would do, they'd bring the harvest there, and they would thrash it and toss it into the air. The grain, being slightly heavier, would fall downwind a little bit. The chaff, the lighter stuff, would fall downwind further. And if you did this properly, you ended up with two piles. The nearer pile you bagged and took for market, and the further pile you burned as chaff to get rid of the vermin and what have you. But a thrashing floor thus was a scene of uh, a number of key events in the Old Testament. It's also important to understand this if you're going to understand the events of Ruth, chapter 3 and all of that. But we'll keep moving here. When David wants to build a temple... For God, God says, no, you're you're a man of war. Your son Solomon will build it. And David says, okay, I'll just pay the bills. So he went ahead and accumulated all the materials and laid the preparations. And indeed, Solomon builds the temple on the thrashing floor of Aruna right here. So it's got nothing to do, strangely enough, with the Dome of the Rock, despite all the legends, including the traditions within the Judaistic community. But this piece of real estate right here is what we're going to be talking about. David, when he conquers... Jerusalem from the Jebusites conquers this area right here at the base of this ridge. And that becomes known as the City of David. And as it grows, it grows up this ridge. And the temple was just above the city up here. As long as I've got this topo map, I'll point out some other things to you. Incidentally, after the temple's built, Jerusalem will grow in this direction. The Kedron Valley is a very, very deep valley. The Mount of Olives is over on the east side. So the city grows this way. Mount Zion is actually here, but becomes a synonym for the whole area, because most of Jerusalem is here. In fact, what you see outlined here is one of the walls. The early wall, the first temple wall, is right here. Second temple wall is here. But this, all of this is the old city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, of course, has grown over this way from the graph, just to give you a rough feeling. I want you to notice something, though. Jerusalem is always vulnerable from the north. It's protected on the east by the Kidron Valley, from the south on the Hinnom Valley. 
and until it outgrew it, the Teropian Valley provided a natural valley to the west. Its vulnerable side was always to the north. It was from the north that David conquered it, and it was from the north that the Romans conquered it in 70 A.D. In anticipation of that, we're going to be talking about the Antonia Fortress, but you need to recognize that fortress's primary role was to protect the city from the north. And that will become relevant as we try to explore some of the other aspects of the emergence here. At this point, let's talk a little bit about the temple itself. This is a reconstruction of Solomon's temple. Those of you that have studied the tabernacle will recognize its basic architecture. That out in front you would have the uh, altar of sacrifice and the laver. You'd enter in here, there's the holy place and the Holy of Holies. What makes it different than the tabernacle is the presence of the porch and these two strange pillars that have names, Yachin and Boaz. Also, a prominent feature of the temple is a whole bunch of storerooms that are accessible from the outside, not from the inside temple, but from the outside. And this architecture, I won't take the time to get into now, but I want to highlight for you this architecture may be far more spiritually significant than most people recognize. I'm indebted to my wife's research for this discovery. Seven times in the New Testament it says, You are the temple of God. And it's my personal view, for lots of reasons I won't bother to develop here, that that temple holds the key to our own software architecture. The real you is not hardware, it's software. Call it soul, spirit, whatever you like. And most of us have no concept of how it's organized. And until we understand how it's organized, we really won't understand our behavior. And it's interesting, everyone that wants to study human behavior indulges in the writings of a paranoid schizophrenic who lived in Vienna so long ago, rather than apply what we know about software today. You cannot infer the architecture of the software from its behavior. You have to have the designer's manual. And it's interesting that's exactly true here. The good news is the architecture that makes us up is in the Scripture. And seven times in the New Testament, we're pointed to it. That's the temple of God. And that's more than just the tabernacle. And there's a whole study as to why. But I'm going to encourage you to try to understand this architecture and where that's most skillfully... We have a little briefing package called Architecture of Man, which is a computer engineer's view of these subjects. But a far more probing and, and um, comprehensive and practical application of all this has just been published in my wife's book called The Way of Agape. My name's on it because I did an opening and closing chapter, but the truth of the matter, it's her, her 15, 17 years of research that led to that book. So I encourage you, if you haven't discovered that, to take a look at it because it really explains the spiritual significance of these storerooms, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, and this very, very unusual, very unusual implications of the porch, the Dianoa. So I'll leave that with you. But I, I bring this up here, though, to show you the basic architecture of Solomon's temple. That's in cross-section, and that's in, in a longitudinal section, to give you a rough feeling for it. Now, the original Temple Mount, again, north is at the top of this diagram. The temple was located, presumably... Now, this is, again, traditional positioning here. This is a temple here. There are various gates. I won't bore you with all this. It's going to change. There are gates to the south called the Holda Gates. There's also a west gate. We'll talk a little bit about that. I want you to notice there is a fossi, as it's called, or a moat. There's an excavation just to the north here. 
that appears to have had military implications. It's protected by valleys on three sides, but not to the north. And this moat was an ancient, ancient, had ancient beginnings as a source of protection. And that's the original mount. Of course, Solomon's temple gets destroyed. They come back and they um, rebuild the temple under Ezra and Nehemiah. That temple in 167 B.C. gets desecrated by the Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes. There is some additional changes. I won't get into all of that. After Antiochus Epiphanes desecrates the temple, you come to the Maccabean Revolt and enters the period of the Hasmoneans. And when the Hasmoneans uh, take over, they expand the temple platform, make it larger. They extend it to the south. And this dotted line is where it is today, so it's going to get extended even further by Herod. This is about 141 B.C. When um, the Hasmoneans fall to Rome and Herod is in power, you have the Temple Mount start to approximate as you see it today. And again, this is the traditional rendering that I'm showing you. These various Warren's Gate and Robinson's Arch are from the various British discoverers that uncovered some of those excavations. But the temple traditionally stood here. You'll notice the moat is right here. The Antonia Fortress is traditionally viewed as being here, but that's increasingly becoming under suspicion. I'll explain that in a minute. There is an enormous difference in elevation between the temple floor, this flat 35-acre site, and the valley below. The gates that are called the Hulda Gates are viewed as tunnels that rise up from the south up into the temple floor itself. I'll come back to that in a minute. Let me give you a quick glimpse of Herod's temple, which is somewhat similar to Solomon's temple and yet different. It was built on the same site as Solomon's temple, wherever that turns out to be. And again, we can recognize, if we look carefully, the basic architecture. There's a porch, a holy place, and a holy of holies. Around this are the storerooms. Again, similar but larger and more flamboyant than Solomon's originally was. Around this is the court of the Gentiles. That wasn't just Gentiles, it was Gentile proselytes. But the point is, the court of the Gentiles. Israeli women could go further, could go into the court of women, and there are four chambers here I'll come back to. Israelites could go a little further, but then you have only the priests in here officiating with the various appliances for the offerings. You had the altar, and you had the laver, and uh, the temple itself. These four chambers... Chamber of Lepers, Chamber of Wood, Chamber of the Nazarenes, and the Chamber of Oil were utilitarian chambers servicing the temple. There is a legend, may or may not be true, that the Ark of the Covenant was hidden in a secret chamber under the Chamber of Wood. And there are many people today that believe it's there. If they know where the temple is, they can find the Ark of the Covenant in a special contrivance that Solomon anticipated centuries earlier. Anyway, that's Herod's temple, a rough sketch of it. None of the details are free of controversy. On the other hand, that's pretty reasonable amalgam of the views of Herod's temple. Herod's temple did not have the Ark of the Covenant in it, by the way. Ark of the Covenant was only in the first temple. There are many stories about that, and uh, it is not necessary for the third temple. Calling Herod's temple the second temple, the temple that is now in anticipation is 
called the third temple. Let me deviate now and show you the Temple Mount. If you visit it today, what you would expect to find. There's a lot of details here we will not bother with. But this roughly 35-acre site is the Temple Mount. The biblical Jerusalem fell to Israel as a result of the Six-Day War. Ten days later, Moshe Dayan gave the administration of this site to the Waqf, the High Muslim Council. Actually an arm of Jordan, interestingly enough. It was his gesture as a, as a token gesture to the Muslim interest, an attempt to try to keep peace, give them a sort of throwing them a bone, so to speak. In recent years, the Islamic interests have gotten increasingly belligerent about access to the mount. And so it's increasingly surfacing as a major, major international issue. If you're an Israeli and you go on the Temple Mount, you'll be harassed by the Israeli police. Because they're not religious, their panic is they don't want to offend the Muslims. They just don't want, they don't want an uprising. So ironically enough, it's Israel's own enforcement machinery that harasses the Jews or Christians on the mount at various times. North is to the top. Mount of Olives is over here to the uh, east. The city of Jerusalem to the west. In fact, even the old city is to the west. This wall, which is like a retaining wall, is the famed western wall. Now, if you were to enter the Temple Mount, you typically will go up a ramp right up here and go through the Maghrabi Gate. And as you come onto this area, the two prominent structures on the Mount are the Al-Aqsa Mosque to the south and this octagonal structure called the Dome of the Rock, which is up on a slightly raised platform up here. There's a difference in level somewhat here. And this Dome of the Rock sits over a prominent rock that is venerated by the Muslims for their reasons and by the Jews for their reasons. Now, there are lots of other things here that have no real biblical interest, except a few I'll mention. There is a prominent gate here that's regarded as being the eastern gate, the golden gate, sometimes called the Shushan gate. The gate you see in all the pictures is a Turkish gate, but underneath it, they have discovered a first century gate. Now, whether that gate is really the eastern gate or not, most people presume it is. It may not be. Infrared photography has revealed another gate, possibly, in this area. And that's going to lead to a controversy I'll get to in a minute. Now, obviously, for centuries, the Jewish community, in fact, the world community, has presumed that this Dome of the Rock sits where the temple originally stood. And many, many studies, even to this day, support that kind of a view. And, in fact, as recently as 1993, Leit Ritmer, a, a prominent author and scholar, published in Biblical Archaeological Review, some reasons why he's convinced more than ever that that is still correct. There is a key step there. There are certain dimensions that he uses, 500 cubits by 500 cubits, and so I won't go through his whole arguments, but he believes that the traditional view is the correct one, and he may be right. Don't misunderstand me. I want you to notice something, though. Notice the temple is here, the temple area. Not this expanded one, but this one. And I want you to notice where the moat is, the fosse, would be north of the temple but south of the Antonia Fortress. Now, to anyone that has military engineering instincts, that's very strange. I'll come back to that. But it turns out there have been many, many studies of the Temple Mount throughout the centuries. And a Frenchman, Bagatti, published a study in which he raised some academic doubts as to exactly where 
the temple really stood. And he suggested the temple stood slightly to the south. For lots of reasons, his studies weren't taken too seriously. But, let's see, Bugatti did this in about 1958. I'll give you a summary of some of the other studies. But, but he, he stimulated the studies of a Dr. Asher Kaufman. And Asher is a very close friend. Chuck Smith and I funded some of his original research. His primary publications are in Hebrew, but the pages in the book that are in English are the book that, that dedicate the book to Chuck Smith, Nan, and I for helping him get started. But he has uncovered painstakingly all kinds of evidences that suggest that the temple stood to the north of the Dome of the Rock. Now you can see lightly here, here's the Dome of the Rock, here's the original, same scale, the Temple Mount. There's the Dome of the Rock, there's the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Dr. Kaufman believes the temple stood right here, and the outer court was here. And I won't go through all the subtle little reasons why, various outcroppings and various things to support his view. One of the principal observations is that his Holy of Holies and gates line up very closely to the eastern gate. And there are records that indicate from the Mount of Olives you could look through the eastern gate, look into the temple at certain occasions, right, uh, to the veil and the Holy of Holies. And so all of that tends to support Dr. Kaufman's view. Now, one of the things that's pivotal in his analysis is there is, right here where he believes the Holy of Holies stood, there is a rock there that's very unusual. It's all kinds of, uh, of stones, but there's one that's obviously a conspicuous bedrock stone sitting right there. And that is covered at the moment by a small cupola. All over the Temple Mount, there are various monuments and uh, markers that date back to the Crusades and the, the Ottoman Turk area, all kinds of mostly Muslim pertinences of various kinds. This particular one uh, is recorded in history as having two different names. One's called Dome of the Tablets. And the other one's called the Dome of the Spirits. And Kaufman suspects that those labels echo its original role, which it was on that rock that the Ark of the Covenant stood in Solomon's Temple. Thus the name, Dome of the Tablets, because the tables of stone were in the Ark of the Covenant at that time, or the Dome of the Spirits. So pivotal Dr. Kaufman's view is the role, possible role of that stone. Now... I'll share something with you that's sometimes hard to explain, but by a lecture like this, it's hard to explain in writing. If I take that same diagram and draw a center line through it, it turns out if you take Solomon's temple, you find that there's a six and a half degree problem. Dr. Kaufman was puzzled. He's convinced for various reasons that the temple was not exactly rectangular, it's slightly trapezoidal. And he also discovered what he believes is a six-and-a-half-degree error, but he's not sure why. Well, it happened when I went to Israel to visit Dr. Kaufman. We happened to have just been finishing our study of Joshua and the long day of Joshua, in which we also explored the conjectures of Patton, Steinhauer, and Hatch, who, the NASA scientists who did an analysis of the orbits of Mars and, and conjecture that the long day of Joshua involved a near pass by the planet Mars. I won't go through all that here. If you're interested in that, it's in the second tape of a series we call Signs in the Heavens, which goes into all of that. But the point was, of those calculations, if Steinhauer, Patch, and Hatch are right, the um, direction of true east, according to their calculations for unrelated reasons, changed a little over six degrees in about 701 B.C. 
when I share that with Dr. Kaufman, of course, he got them all excited because that might explain the problem because they knew Solomon's temple faced due east. When they went to rebuild it on the foundations, true east, unknown to them, had shifted. So they couldn't reconcile the foundations with the need to be due east. And that could account if both of those conjectures are correct, i.e. the Steinhauer conjectures about the near pass by Mars and all of that, and, and if Kaufman's right, that could explain the deviation there. So created some interest, and all of that is just a colorful background for the moment because uh, there are some other views that are gaining, in our view, a great deal of uh, credibility. So let me keep moving here. It turns out that a friend of ours by the name of Tuvia Segev, who's an architect in Tel Aviv, bright young guy, very prosperous young architect, but also with a deep, deep interest in the temple, he decided to try to build a three-dimensional model of the Temple Mount. And uh, he discovered some problems. I won't go through all the geometry here, but what he did is he took all the records, the Tanakh, the Old Testament, the Mishnah, the Tesefta, and also Josephus and such, and tried to, every place the temple is recorded, he tried to infer from those records some aspects of it. And as he tried to reflect all of that in a model, he ran into some difficulties, because Agrippa was able to look in the Azurah, that he was able to watch the offerings being made from his palace. And as you start modeling that in three dimensions, you discover either his palace was much higher than is possible in that day, or the temple had to stand lower in elevation than is implied by standing at the Dome of the Rock. So that caught his attention. Josephus mentions in in Jewish wars that Agrippa could look out from the Hasmonean palace and view the sacrifice of the Azariah. The Jews were so incensed by that, they built a wall in order to block his view. And the Roman soldiers patrolling the western threshold were unable to view the Azariah, so they demanded that the wall be demolished. The Jews objected, and interestingly enough, they obtained the consent of Emperor Nero to leave the wall in place. When you get into all that and try to model it, you get into elevation problems, because either you've got to make the wall and the palace too high, or this temple stood lower. If the temple was at the location of the Dome of the Rock, it would require the palace to be over 75 meters high, which is, there's never been a building that high in Jerusalem. There's another issue. The waters feeding the temple came from an aqueduct from the Hebron Mountains, passing through Solomon's pools, all the way to Jerusalem. The lowest canal reached the Temple Mount through the Jewish Quarter and the Wilson Bridge. And according to the ancient authorities, the conduit that supplied the uh, water to the high priest's mikvah, a ritual bath, which was above the water gate. Well, when you model all that, you also run the same problem. We know where the water came from because that's excavatable. We know where the water ended up in the mikvah above the water gate in the temple. Well, we know where this is today because portions of that canal are still there. And yet, if the temple stood at the Dome of the Rock, you got 21 meters discrepancy. They didn't have pumps in those days. This thing was all gravity-fed. And so it had to, in fact, it had to be to comply. It had to be living water. It had to be running water. So there's a problem there. Now, there's some other issues. There's another piece of history that's helpful to have. Most people, when they study their biblical history of the temple, after it's destroyed by, by the Romans, that sort of ends it. We sort of finish at 70 AD and come to the present time. There's a piece of history that I'd like to insert that you need to know about. And that is the revolt of Bar Kokhba. And about 135 AD, this is after the temple was destroyed, they had a revolt against the Romans. A guy by the name of Bar Kokhba led a revolt, and he 
slaughtered the Roman 12th legion, an indignity they never recovered from. And they actually threw off the yoke of Rome for three years. And it's interesting that Bar Kokhba, it took the Romans about three years to get their act together and to put down the Roman revolt. But if you study history, you discover during those three years, Bar Kokhba and his gang started to rebuild the temple. Most people don't realize that. In fact, if you look at a coin, and I have one up here for those that might be interested, the Bar Kokhba coin issued during that time shows the temple as one of their achievements, that in anticipation of it being finished, that they were in the process of rebuilding it. Now, as I say, the Romans at that time took about three years to put down the Bar Kokhba revolt, which they did. But when they did, Emperor Hadrian said he realized that as long as there was a Jewish president in Judea, they could never rule that unruly place. So they not only put down the revolt, they leveled all of Jerusalem, not just the temple area, the entire city of Jerusalem, and they built a city, a Roman city, on top of Jerusalem called Aila Capitolina, actually named after Hadrian's middle name and Capitolina being the three primary gods they worshipped. And they also built a temple to Jupiter right on top of where the Jewish temple stood. Now, in Bar Kokhba's day, they would know where the temple was that they were trying to rebuild. When the Romans leveled that, they put the temple of Jupiter there. Now, it's interesting that there is such a temple to Jupiter that's available to us at Baalbek, Lebanon. And the Baalbek temple looks approximately like that. Now, this will probably have more meaning to you if I give you a, the benefit of a plan view. Let's do it this way. We know from architectural records that the Romans had an unusual style of building their temples. They typically built a rectangular basilica, then a large courtyard, and opposite the basilica they put some kind of prominent structure, either circular or a polygon in style. And this courtyard then was also where they put their prominent statues. Seeing it in relief here, you've got the rectangular basilica, a courtyard, some prominent things there, and then a rotunda. And the uses of these were slightly different in different places, but that was the basic architecture. What's interesting to notice is if you take the Temple Mount that I showed you a few moments ago, as it looks today, that'll refresh your memory, and if you take the plan of the Baalbek Temple to scale and put it over this, something very interesting emerges. See, one of the first things that put Tuvia Sagib onto this was the recognition that the center line of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, the Al-Qa'z Fountain, and this is on a grid. An architect always notices that there's a grid, a design grid underneath it. What also makes this interesting is the Baalbek Temple to Jupiter was built by the same guy that built the Temple of Jupiter in Jerusalem. Now, the Al-Aqsa Mosque has been rebuilt several times, destroyed by earthquakes. And the Temple of Jupiter at Baalbek is a hexagon, and the, the rotunda at the Dome of the Rock is an octagon. Slightly different, so this isn't certain. But what it suggests is that after the Bar Kokhba revolt, the Romans built their temple to Jupiter right on top of the Jewish temple. That is done about 141 A.D. When you get to about the 3rd, 4th century A.D., you've got the conversion of Constantine and all of that. 
all these things get converted to Christian use. Okay? In the 7th century, in 612 on, the Muslims rise to power. They overrun this place and level it. But these ruins that were originally Roman ruins became Christian churches, then get modified and rebuilt as Muslim structures. And if that conjecture is correct, the Al-Aqsa Mosque originally and the Dome of the Rock were built on a structure that was originally Roman. Now, if all that's true, we know a lot of interesting things. Because we also know from Jerome's commentary on Isaiah, he makes reference to the fact that there was a, a statue to Hadrian, an equestrian statue to Hadrian, placed right over the Holy of Holies. Well, that equestrian statue would have stood right there, where today is the Alcaz Fountain. So, Tuvia Segev's rather amazing suggestion is that the temple didn't stand 100 meters to the north, the way Dr. Asher Kaufman suggests, but rather it stood about 100 meters to the south. And it turns out that, see, something else I forgot to mention, the bedrock, if you may recall the topological map in the beginning, it rises going north, or put another way, it drops going to the south. So the three-dimensional aspects of the temple, implying it had to be lower, implies it had to be to the south. There's a number of other reasons also it had to be to the south. The Hulda Gates. The Hulda Gates are recorded in the old records, and they do not conform to the kind of gates and angles and distances that are implied by the current reconstructions. Again, all that gets reconciled is the temple. It all implies the temple stood to the south. So between the Agrippa records, the Roman records, the aqueduct, the uh, possibility that this Baalbek uh, scenario is valid, all that is suge- not conclusive, but suggestive that Tuvia Segev is correct. If Tuvia Segev is correct, this is sort of what it might look like. This is sort of a view from the southeast. Mount of Olives is over here. This would be the temple at Baalbek, or this later becomes the ruins upon which the Al-Aqsa Mosque was built. There's the rotunda that later becomes the Dome of the Rock. The Hadrian statue would be there, which implies, if Tuvia's reconstruction is correct, that this is probably a rendering of putting them together, where the temple stood here. And that means that the Holy of Holies is where the Alcaz fountain is. Now, if this is correct, there's an interesting irony, because in Daniel chapter 9, it mentions that, speaking of Jerusalem, he says, The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, in verse 26. Then it goes on, then he, that is the prince that shall come, shall cause the sacrifice and so forth to cease. Well, it's interesting. If, in fact, Tuvia proves to be right, then the people of the prince that shall come, that destroyed the city and the sanctuary, built this Aila Capitolina, which documents the place the temple was, so that they could rebuild it on that spot so that the prince that shall come can desecrate it, if you see, follow the irony. And so we'll see. We'll see. Now, those are the three views. The traditional view that the temple stood where the Dome of the Rock is, that may prove to be true. The reason Dr. Asher Kaufman's view became so popular, so talked about, about ten years ago, when it first was announced, is because if Dr. Kaufman is right, the uh, Dome of the Rock sits in the outer court. If you recall the Kaufman proposal, the temple being 100 meters to the north, the Dome of the Rock sits in the outer court. And everybody rushed to Revelation chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and notice where John was told to measure the naos, that is the temple proper, 
But the outer court, that is the court of the Gentiles, cast it out because it's given to the Gentiles. And so immediately that suggested the possibility that maybe the Jewish temple will be rebuilt without disturbing the Dome of the Rock. That's a very attractive proposal if you're living 5,000 miles away. But if you're a Jew or a Gentile, it's not very appealing. The Muslims have no desire to have a Jewish temple in the, next to their Dome of the Rock. In fact, anywhere at all, for that matter. And of course, the Jews are not excited about having the Dome of the Rock next to the sacred temple. So that, that the theory, and you often see it rendered in, in various diagrams and simulated photographs, but that's, uh, that's just a view. It's a possibility. It could be. What's interesting about Tubius Segev's suggestion is that it actually turns out the same thing's true there. If the temple stood to the south... Both the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, both are in the outer court. There's even another dimension most people don't realize, and that is that you could build the temple without disturbing the temple mount at all because the elevation drops low enough that you could build it underneath and comply to the foundational requirements and all the rest. Now, you say, gee, that's a lot of stuff, Chuck. Who's right? Don't know. If I was forced to a vote, I think all of us are in the comfortable position of just standing back and watching. The exciting thing is you've got very serious scientists using ground-penetrating radar, using thermographic or infrared photography, and uh, microgravity sensors, and resistivity studies, and other things, trying to understand what they can about the archaeology of the mountain. As you may know, the Muslims do not allow archaeology there, and if they find anything of archaeological interest, they immediately destroy it because they're trying to eradicate any evidence of Jewish presence, historical presence on the Mount, which, of course, is offensive, not just to, obviously, people with an interest in the Mount, but even just people who are interested in, in history and archaeology in general find that offensive. And what makes this rather disturbing, too, is you may realize that uh, in the present tide of events, Qumran and all of that area, which is so rich in discoveries, it will be going to the West Bank or being relegated to uh, Muslim supervision if the current patterns hold. Now, I have here also some infrared photography that will not show up very well, I think, on the view graph. But some weeks ago, infrared photography, and this is uh, several generations removed, unfortunately, you will find the actual photography in our briefing package called The Coming Temple Update. It's an update to the book. In addition to the book that I mentioned, we publish two tapes plus notes and diagrams and more than I've told you tonight, all these are from the briefing package. It has photographs of this infrared photography. But some months ago, they did some infrared photography and while you can't see it too well in this rendering, there is clearly a pentagonal structure indicated below the Dome of the Rock. The infrared photography takes advantage of the fact that heat or cold changes at different rates and is influenced by the structure beneath and so if you take pictures at the right time, they'll usually reveal structures that are subterranean. And this re reveals very clearly a pentagonal structure around the Dome of the Rock. The point being is that this pentagonal structure implies, strangely enough, that the Dome of the Rock is part of the Antonia Fortress. And it appears to have been part of Stratos Tower, which was part of the Antonia Fortress. There is a similar pentagonal structure, also called Stratos Tower, as part of the Roman buildings at Caesarea. That's how we can draw these inferences. And if you study Josephus, Aristobulus I, king of Judea from 104 to 103 B.C., had his brother Antigonus murdered in a subterranean passage to Stratos Tower, which was between the temple and the Antonia Fortress proper. In other words, a tunnel between the two. 
And so this implies that the rock that's a part of this, it was part of the Antonio Fortress. Now, if all that's true, that starts to make a lot of sense. This would be a more rational layout that conforms to the ancient texts. Namely, that you have Herod's temple, you have Antonia's fortress south of the moat, not up here. When you visit Jerusalem, they'll usually show you the basement of the Al-Amariah school as part of the Antonia fortress. And indeed, it's very ancient, but it needs to be on a 25-meter rock, not a 5-meter rock. And there's other problems why archaeologists have suspected this for some time anyway. But the main point is, to have the fort on the wrong side of the moat doesn't make sense. For the fort to be south of the moat, where the moat facilitates the defense of the city from its vulnerable side, namely the north, this fortress was named, of course, after Mark Antony, but um, was adjacent to the Temple Mount. And that makes all the sense in the world. And this rock that's so venerated was probably some aspect of the Dome of the Rock, the temple itself, to the south and at a lower elevation. And the elevations all work out. In fact, it's from those elevations we can almost exactly pinpoint where the temple stood if, in fact, subsequent evidence confirms Tuvia's uh, hypothesis. Now, if you don't have enough of those, I've gone through three of them. Here are 14 views, and I know you'd be heart to go through each one very thoroughly this evening. <laughs> Actually, way back in uh, 1864, there was a slightly to the north conjecture by de Vogue, uh, Ferguson to the south. Ferguson had the same view back in 1878 that Tuvia Sagiv does today. Warren, Condor, all these go through, Watson, and so on. The more recent years, of course, Bugatti's studies, which what led Kaufman to his studies, but he came to these conclusions, as I've indicated before. And again, I want you to notice the Dome of the Rock sits in the outer court, according to this view. But it's also true of Tuvia Sagiv's view. And Rittmeyer still defends, for some good reasons, he defends the traditional view. So you get to take your pick. None of these are certain. I should give you another little background Chuck Smith and I funded the Stanford Research Institute's uh, radiophysics lab to go into Israel back in the early 80s. In those days, that laboratory was run by a friend of ours by the name of Lambert Dolphin. And uh, we funded the introduction of ground-penetrating radar to the archaeological community in those days. Archaeology, as you can probably gather, is more or less a spade-and-shovel technology. But radar can penetrate the ground under the right conditions to maybe 10, 20 meters under the right circumstances. And there's a lot of other technologies, too, infrared, as I've mentioned, others. So back in the early 80s, we undertook a project there and discovered a lot of interesting things, but not what we really hoped to because of some political problems we had. But it was through that relationship that we developed such close relationships to some of the principal investigators there uh, over the years. Now, I've focused here tonight in um, geographic or geometrical aspects of the temple. What you might also be interested in to know is that there's an organization called the Temple Institute that has uh, actually fabricated 63 of the 103 implements they expect to be used in the temple. And there are pictures of those in the book, by the way. They've also, since the book was published, finished the breastplate of the high priest with the 12 stones, each for the 12 tribes. If you go to Israel, you can actually see and handle, given permission, the headdress of the high priest. You can see the lottery boxes for, for selecting the scapegoat at uh, Yom Kippur and all of that. And you can see the silver trumpets. You can see the you can see all these things. They're very serious about it. You can also probably get a chance to see the semi-automatic looms weaving the linen for the priests. There are more than 200 young men in training to be 
priests to serve in the temple when it comes to fruition. And if the regulars here will excuse me, I always like to point out you can't be a priest without having Levi jeans. I think you know that. Bad, bad, I know. Truth of the matter is the Konanim, those that are from the tribe of of the priests are identifiable. Interesting enough, many people are surprised by that, but uh, that seems to be uh, not the concern. These young men are studying deeply, full-time, in the yeshivas, preparing all the rituals and traditions that associate with temple uh, administration. They have scientists scanning the world for the right marine snails to yield the dyes for the Levitical blue and the royal purple for the vestments. Uh, And on it goes. They're making arrangements for the... uh, Ashes of the red heifer, raising a special herd of blemish-free red heifers and all of that. That may not be necessary for two reasons, not the least of which is we have sources that we believe are correct that know where the ashes of the red heifer are, and they're, strangely enough, relatively accessible. No, they're not in Jordan, with all due respects to Vendel Jones and those guys. The Ark of the Covenant continues to be subject of many legends and what have you. We have a briefing package called The Mystery of the Lost Ark, which on the one hand is a deep study of the tabernacle, but then also recounts the various legends about the ark and where its whereabouts are today. When we participated in the CBS primetime TV special, the two top rabbis in Israel, Rabbi Shlomo Goran, who is the chief rabbi at Israel at one time, and also Rabbi Yehuda Getz, who's a close friend who controls a rabbinical tunnel, uh, both of them on camera said they know where the ark is. Off camera, they admitted they've seen it. And so the official view among the insiders is that when they need the ark, they can get it. There are a number of us that suspect that uh, may be a slight exaggeration. From Jeremiah 3.16, there's the indication that the ark will never be seen again. The ark in chapter 11 of Revelation is the ark that's in heaven. Even Moses' ark, the original ark as we think of it, was a replica of what Moses was shown in heaven. That may come as a surprise. The point is, uh, if you understand the purpose of the ark... You understand its role throughout history. You can easily doubt that God would have that ark occur in a temple that's destined to be desecrated by the Antichrist. So, and the, furthermore, the purpose of the ark was to give God a place to dwell. And Matthew chapter 12, verse 6 reminds us that one greater than the temple is here dwelling inside you. So, it's interesting, though. The reason I want to take this time to to get into this a little bit is that three times in the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, and John all make reference to the ark as one of the emergent events just prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. And the fact that we see, every time we visit Israel, further preparations anticipating an opportunity to rebuild the temple should quicken our pulse from the point of view of the fulfillment of Bible prophecy. So, don't confuse the third temple with the millennial temple that Ezekiel describes and that will be set up by the Lord when he does return. The temple that will be rebuilt will be one that is going to be the subject of a gigantic political event when the coming world leader, after confirming the covenant with Israel for seven years, in the middle of that seven-year period, by then is strong enough where he openly, dramatically reneges on his commitments to them, sets himself up to be worshipped, sets up an idol in the Holy of Holies, just as Antiochus Epiphanes did so long ago. And it's interesting to realize that there may be a genealogical link between Antiochus Epiphanes and Titus Vespasian, who led the people of the Prince that Shall Come to destroy the city and sanctuary. And that genealogical link extends to many, many prominent families on the earth today. And uh, if you read our newsletter last month, you have some perspective of this.
But it's interesting, as we read the Bible, as we try to understand these ancient texts, it's interesting to realize how timely they are, how it's all coming to the surface in front of our very eyes. Now, the main thing I'm going to encourage you to do is, number one, learn all that you can about the Ark of the Covenant, about the temple from the Old Testament, and then examine these prophecies, because I honestly believe that you're going to see over the next few weeks, few months, few years, whatever, these things move forward, and you'll have no appreciation for these unless you really know your Bible. And again, it's not any one thing. Let me again step back and try to put all of this in perspective. The Bible says the city of Babylon is going to be rebuilt in the banks of the Euphrates. And if you look at current maps and reconnaissance satellite photography, you can see it there. Saddam Hussein has used it for affairs of state as early as 1987. It's there. And setting the stage, if you will, for Isaiah 13 and 14 and Jeremiah 15 and 51 and other passages. If you look at Europe, you see it reemerging in power on the planet Earth, exactly like Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 lays out so long ago. And as you see Israel in the land, you see the struggle of the entire world over the issue of Jerusalem, major prominent feature of our international intelligence horizon, and comes up on the 3,000th anniversary next year for some major issues. As all that's going on, we find Magog arming the very allies that Ezekiel describes, using the very technologies that Ezekiel alludes to getting ready for an invasion in the, in the Middle East that God himself is going to interrupt with some dramatic intervention. So all these things, it's not one of them, it's every major theme of prophecy, if you study it carefully, and take it seriously. God means what he says and says what he means. And uh, no one in the Bible ever reads the Bible but literally. When Daniel reads Jeremiah, he takes them literally, and, and so on. So there are many passages that may puzzle us, but fine, I think we take them and just watch and see. Because each one is moving forward. What an exciting time to be alive. What an exciting time to be alive. So as we go through the book of Revelation, I just thought it would be useful for us to pause and zero in for a little bit on some of these things about the temple. If you're more interested in the temple, we of course have a book on it. And we also have the briefing packages on the temple itself. We of course have the briefing package on the updating the temple information as we have it. We also have a briefing package on the, the Ark of the Covenant and some of those things. So I commend them to you to study and uh, hope that they are edifying. And with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you for this word that you've given us. We thank you, Father, for the excitement that we're heir to by watching the events move into place for the climax. Father, we just thank you that you have provided for us a redemption that's available for the asking. And we thank you, Father, that we ourselves are now your temple, the indwelling place of the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that greater is he that is among us than the temple itself. And yet, Father, as we watch our Jewish friends anticipate this milestone, as we see the preparations begin we begin to recognize again, Father, that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. And Father, we would just pray that you would increase in each of us a sensitivity to the times in which we live. Draw us, Father, into those portions of Scripture that will illuminate the horizon for us, that we each might, first of all, be sensitive to the signs of the times. And in fact, 
the times of the signs. We pray, Father, too, that in all of this, that you would guide each of us to examine carefully our priorities day by day and week by week. Help us to be sensitive to what you're doing. Help us, Father, to measure all our endeavors by eternal yardsticks and not the near-term urgencies that press upon us. Help us, Father, to distinguish between the urgent and the important. We ask all these things, Father, that we might grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, that we would ever be more responsive to your will in our lives, for we commit ourselves afresh into your hands. In the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.